Welcome to Ortho Science Bites. Ortho is proud to sponsor this podcast as a continuing commitment to advance patient care from donations to patient transfusions. I am Tony Cassina, and today I'm joined by Dr. Stella Chow. Dr. Chow is Chief of the Division of Transfusion Medicine and an attending physician in the Division of Hematology at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She earned her medical degree from New York Medical College in Valhalla, New York. Dr. Chow specializes in caring for children with sickle cell disease, those who make antibodies against red cell transfusions, alloimmunization, and those requiring apheresis. Her research interests are focused on improving red blood cell matching for patients through the use of innovative tools. Her work has demonstrated that inheritance of variant blood group antigens in patients with sickle cell disease contributes to their high rate of red cell antibody formation. For her innovative research, she is a recipient of the National Blood Foundation Hall of Fame Award. Dr. Chow is a worldwide recognized author and speaker with over 100 publications and lectures. In addition to her clinical work, Dr. Chow serves as an associate professor of pediatrics at the Perelman School of Medicine, University of Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Chow. With our first question for you, can you please describe to our listeners which hemoglobinopathies, including which type of sickle cells, the disease often requires transfusion? Sure. Well, first, thank you for the invitation to do this podcast with you. In terms of which hemoglobinopathies typically require transfusions, we mostly find ourselves transfusing patients with thalassemia and sickle cell disease. So for thalassemia, either alpha or beta thalassemia, there is a subset that patients who require chronic regular transfusion, and the subset we describe as transfusion-dependent thalassemia. These patients typically come every three to four weeks for an outpatient transfusion, and the main reason to transfuse them is to suppress their own endogenous erythropoiesis so that we circumvent the ineffective erythropoiesis that we see with thalassemia. For patients with sickle cell disease, there also is a subset of patients who require chronic regular transfusion. I would say that the majority of these patients are patients who receive transfusion for prevention of stroke, either primary prophylaxis where they haven't had a stroke, but they are known to be at high risk to have a stroke, either by neuroimaging or abnormal TCDs, or they have had a stroke. And for those patients, we um, also have them on chronic regular transfusion to prevent another stroke from occurring. Other patients may not require chronic transfusions, but may need transfusion either for preoperative preparation, primarily to prevent acute chest following any major surgery where they would require general anesthesia. And then certainly we have patients who require admission to the hospital for acute complications of sickle cell disease, such as splenic sequestration or acute chest syndrome or stroke. And for those patients, they oftentimes do require either a straight transfusion or transfusion by red cell exchange to manage the acute complication. Okay, thank you. For a patient living with sickle cell disease, what are some of the treatments available and how important are blood transfusions to them and why? A lot has happened in the past decade or so for patients with sickle cell disease in terms of new therapies. But 
what many patients currently are being treated with is hydroxyurea, which is actually a drug that has been around for decades. It was approved by the FDA several decades ago for adults with sickle cell disease and more recently approved for pediatric patients with sickle cell disease. And hydroxyurea works by increasing the patient's hemoglobin F, which in turn prevents sickling of red cells that then results in longer red cell lifespan and ultimately increasing the overall hemoglobin level a patient has at baseline. It's been very well studied to decrease pain, acute chest syndrome, hospitalizations, and the need for transfusion. Now, we typically offer this drug to patients all over the age of nine months, um, and we've seen that by maintaining patients in the pediatric stage of life, we've decreased the number of complications that these patients have. We've also seen that overall patients having a higher hemoglobin would result in less hospitalizations, either for pain or acute chest. And perhaps one of the most amazing results that we've seen is that we see very few patients now who have abnormal transcranial Doppler ultrasounds, which is the sign that oftentimes those patients are at increased risk of stroke. And so certainly since providing hydroxyurea, basically to toddlers and above, we've decreased the number of patients who have had complications and who have had to go on to be on a regimen of chronic transfusion therapy. In addition, in the past several years, two new drugs have been approved by the FDA. One is Voxelator, and this drug works by keeping the hemoglobin in an oxygenated state. And that helps the red blood cells maintain a normal shape and, again, prevents them from sickling and binding together and blocking blood flow in the blood vessels. So again, decreases complications of sickle cell disease in part by raising the hemoglobin level. So we see a patient steady state hemoglobin increase by one or two grams per deciliter, and that in itself is protective against complications of sickle cell disease. And in the world of transfusion therapy, for patients who have had complications with alumnization or delayed hemolytic transfusion reactions, we now also recommend that some of these patients be on Voxelator, not because they've had a lot of pain or other admissions, but basically by being at a higher steady state hemoglobin level, if they do get admitted, they might have a complication that would have in the past required them to have needed a red cell transfusion. But by being on Voxelator and having a higher baseline, we can now circumvent red cell transfusion in certain patients who are either heavily alloimmunized or have a concerning history of a delayed hemolytic transfusion reaction. And for those patients, you want to be particularly judicious with your transfusions of red cells. And then third is a drug called crizolizumab, which is another recently FDA-approved drug that is used to primarily reduce the frequency of vaso-occlusive episodes or pain crises in both adults and adolescent patients with sickle cell disease. And this drug pretty much works by binding to something called P-selectin, which then blocks its interaction with the vessel walls and decreases the amount of sickle in the patient has of their red cells and the red cells then adhering to the walls of the blood vessels. And so that is also another recent development for individuals with sickle cell disease. And then there's also additional things that are on the horizon. So 
Bone marrow transplant is not terribly new for patients with sickle cell disease. I think we have had not as much luck in terms of finding perfect matched donors for patients with sickle cell disease. For most patients, the best match would be a matched sibling donor, HLA, fully matched individual. But in lieu of a sibling donor or a matched family donor, we can look at unrelated donors. And to date, there still is a paucity of matched donors in part because like many things, HLA is inherited and having a robust Black donor pool who donate their bone marrow is required to find the matches that we need for bone marrow transplant in individuals with sickle cell disease. And while that is a remaining challenge, the new developments that we are seeing are in gene therapy. So many groups are working on different ways to use gene therapy on autologous cells from patients with sickle cell disease. So essentially you would collect their stem cells. You could potentially correct their mutation in the hemoglobin gene, or there's another gene that affects how much hemoglobin F you make. That's another alternative strategy. But both of these types of gene therapy strategies are being studied. And hopefully in the years to come, we'll have some good candidate therapies for patients with sickle cell disease when it comes to gene therapy. Thank you. There sounds like there's a lot of new treatments available and new opportunities for the future for treating these patients. Absolutely. Are there any specific parts of the population most affected than other ones? And just to understand, you know, if there's a difference between the pediatric and adult populations and ethnicities among those that are affected with these hematological conditions. Well, I think along the pediatric and adult spectrum, we might see different complications of sickle cell disease. So for instance, splenic sequestration is something that we more typically see in patients who are young children. However, with many more patients on hydroxyurea and preserving their their splenic function and their spleen, we are seeing older patients in terms of older children and adolescents and some adults who can now also have splenic sequestration. Typically, we see that they're prior to hydroxyurea and prior to transcranial zapa ultrasound screening. We see that stroke typically happens in early childhood, and then there's a second peak in the young adulthood age range. And so these are just two examples of complications that might affect certain age groups. But certainly complications such as pain and acute chest syndrome, those can pretty much happen at any part of the lifespan. In terms of ethnicity, in the U.S., most individuals with sickle cell disease are Black or of African descent. And this is important because blood group antigen expression is inherited, and the frequencies of blood group antigens vary by population. So whether you're of African descent or Asian descent or Hispanic descent, the proteins that you express on your red blood cells will be different based on your racial background. And so this becomes important for us when we are transfusing patients with sickle cell disease. Okay, thank you. What can clinical laboratories and transfusion medicine laboratories do to support clinicians in providing patient care for sickle cell disease? 
considering that there's labs of all sizes and resources out there, can you provide your perspective on that? So I'll speak to this in terms of the transfusion service and what the transfusion service and the blood bank can do to help support clinicians who provide patient care for sickle cell disease. I think it's really important that we always have close communication with clinical providers. So for instance, if a patient is admitted and has an antibody screen that turns up positive, oftentimes that antibody screen has been sent because the clinical team is anticipating that the patient will require a transfusion. Well, it's probably very useful for us to be able to communicate back in terms of how long it will take us to identify the antibody. And once the antibody is identified, the likelihood of finding compatible blood and if there will be any delays. So there are probably proactive ways that the lab can reach out to the clinical teams. I think the other way is that oftentimes medical directors of blood banks are often consulted in terms of patients who are alloimmunized, whether it's their first antibody that they've made or they're heavily alloimmunized, or they've had a delayed hemolytic transfusion reaction in the past and they want to know what their options are. This is another opportunity to have close communication. So for example, a patient had a history of a DHTR. Is it okay to transfuse that patient if this was a straightforward DHTR or delayed hemolytic transfusion reaction? If a clinician called me and said that the patient has had an uncomplicated history, had been transfused and made an anti-kid antibody and did have a delayed hemolytic transfusion reaction, I would probably feel relatively comfortable providing transfusion that is lacking that antigen as well as prophylactically matched for big C, big E, and K. But if the clinician said, I have a patient who had a delayed hemolytic transfusion reaction and no antibody specificity was identified, then we might want to think harder about whether or not that transfusion is really necessary and look at some of the aspects around that delayed hemolytic transfusion reaction. So for instance, if a patient is admitted and requires a transfusion, those patients are often in an inflamed state, either from acute chest syndrome, or they also have a concomitant vaso-occlusive episode and are at increased risk of making an antibody at the time of an acute complication because they have ongoing inflammation and immune dysregulation. However, if a patient made that antibody or had an event when they're chronically transfused, when they're sort of at their baseline state, again, that would raise more concern. So I think helping clinicians figure out the level of comfort or the level of safety that you might have with providing a transfusion for that event is really helpful. So knowing when we should offer steroids or IVIG or even ecolizumab, which is an anti-complement drug that can help halt severe hemolysis, is helpful to have those conversations with the clinicians. And as you alluded to before, the labs are of all sizes and all resources, as are the hospitals, as are the number of patients a particular clinical team will have been involved with who have sickle cell disease. So I think it's helpful for the transfusion services and the medical directors 
to be aware of sickle cell disease, its high risk of allineization and delayed hemolytic transfusion reactions, and to know what the options are. I'll say the other way that clinical laboratories can help support clinicians and improve patient care for sickle cell disease is raising awareness about red cell genotyping. So the FDA has approved DNA arrays that target over 30 antigens in a dozen blood group systems, basically still excluding ABO and RHD. And these have been commercialized. And having the genotyping of a patient's red cell antigens provides us with a lot more information than what we typically get with an extended red cell antigen panel, where we might get a dozen antigens rather than 30 antigens. And this helps us because if a patient has a new antibody screen, we have a lot more information about what antigens they might be lacking and could be the culprit. And that can really expedite the antibody identification and then allow us to find the appropriate compatible blood. I think the other thing to be aware of is that for patients who make anti-RH antibodies, we now recognize that individuals with sickle cell disease often have variants in their RH blood group system, which may put them at increased risk of developing an anti-RH antibody that in the past we might have thought was an autoantibody, but is really an alloantibody. So for example, you have a patient who's little e positive and forms an anti-little e. There's a possibility that this patient only expresses a partial little e antigen, meaning that they lack one or more epitopes of that antigen and are actually at risk of forming an alloanti little e that um, is to an epitope of that e antigen that he or she lacks. So being aware of these tools and what patients are at risk for is helpful anytime a patient with sickle cell disease presents for transfusion. Okay, thank you. To follow up on the aspect of genotyping, when genotyping is not available, what is your perspective on serology testing that is necessary to be done and, and how to implement that in lieu of the, the genotyping when that is not available? So we do recommend that every patient with sickle cell disease have an extended red cell antigen profile. And if you can get it by the genotype, that's the preferred method. If that's not possible, so for instance, we make sure that the patient's insurance will cover the red cell antigen genotype. And if it's not, since we don't want them to have the out-of-pocket expense, we typically would get an extended red cell antigen profile by serology in place of that. However, I would say that almost 95% or greater, the test is actually covered by a patient's insurance. So I don't think it's usually an issue. If a patient presents for acute care and requires a transfusion and has never had an extended red cell antigen profile, either by serology or genotype, you might choose to do it by serology because you'll have the results within a few hours. The fastest turnaround that you'll get for genotyping really is maybe a day because most times we are sending them to our reference immunogenetics laboratories. And so for the genotyping that looks at the common antigens, that is a turnaround of about a day. But if you need it for the RH comprehensive genotyping, which will pick up the variants that we look for in individuals with sickle cell disease, 
that has a longer turnaround time of days to weeks, depending on the patient's genotype. Okay, thank you. Well, let's switch gears here a little bit and and focus on what the community can do to support blood donations for hemoglobinopathies, especially for those with sickle cell disease. Well, I think we are maybe coming out of one of the most severe national blood shortages that we've seen in decades. So I think any donation right now is appreciated and used. But in terms of finding the appropriate blood donors for individuals with sickle cell disease, as I mentioned before, red cell antigen frequencies are different among people of different racial backgrounds. And so in order to support patients with sickle cell disease, we really do need to have a robust donor pool of African descent. And so the community can help by increasing donor engagement, spreading the word, and becoming a blood donor. We know from some studies that donations from Black individuals are often limited because they have a higher deferral rate, usually because of things like the hemoglobin level or other medical-related reasons. We also know that there's a lack of awareness about sickle cell disease and the importance of donations from Black donors, and that there also are fewer blood drives that are held in Black communities, which would make ease of blood donation easier for those individuals. And so there are many ways that the community can either partner with a blood center or do community outreach or educational programs to increase the awareness about the importance of donations from Black donors and how it can help patients with sickle cell disease. Thank you. The fact is, is that many donor centers are doing outreach programs, especially into a lot of Black churches in uh, their region as a way of communicating the need and the, the awareness of the importance in the sickle cell patient population, which is a fantastic way to get the information out there. Certainly agreed. And I think it was the mid-1990s that in the Philadelphia region, it was really a partnership between the Sickle Cell Disease Association of America, the American Red Cross, and the institution where I'm from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that really partnered together to reach those communities by hosting blood drives, as you mentioned, in churches and schools in Black communities. And they really built up a program that would recruit about 100 or so Black donors a month to a program that recruited 1,500 or more Black donors per month. And That has supported our program for chronic transfusion and for episodic transfusions for patients that we care for at our pediatric institution, as well as the other adult institutions in the Philadelphia area. So it's certainly important that different facets of the community and the medical community come together to achieve that goal. Thank you. You sort of touched on this already, but The past couple of years have been challenged with the pandemic and its impact on blood donations in general. But how has that affected the patients with sickle cell disease in the region? So initially, when the pandemic started, we were very worried that there would be very short supply of units for our patients with sickle cell disease. And in part because many of the donor units that 
are collected from Black donors are oftentimes collected at churches and at high schools. And obviously, with at the start of the pandemic, those blood drives were all canceled. And so it was really a major challenge the first several months of the pandemic. And I know the American Society of Hematology and the Sickle Cell Disease Association of America try to communicate to the medical community and to the patient community about how we might manage the situation. So for patients who were on chronic red cell exchange but could be transfused by straight transfusion, we recommended that those patients switch over because you might have a patient who requires six to eight units of blood for a red cell exchange but would require two units of blood if they receive the transfusion by simple transfusion. The trade-off is that with red cell exchange, we are trying to maintain the patient's iron status. But we felt like for a short amount of time, it would be okay to do straight transfusion and have a little bit of iron loading so that overall we would have enough blood for all patients with sickle cell disease. I think also the many of the blood centers really stepped up their recruitment efforts to reach out to donors who could then come in and donate at the blood centers instead of where they might typically donate either at their place of work or school or church. And somehow we were able to mostly maintain our ability to transfuse the patient to require transfusion. We definitely had patients where We sometimes had to reschedule a red cell exchange because we didn't have enough units, but it would typically be a delay of maybe up to a week. But overall, the blood situation has gotten a little bit better. And I do think that the blood centers really did an excellent job of recruiting the donors that we needed to support our patients. Okay, great. And Dr. Chow, thank you. I really want to just thank you for taking the time with us today and giving us your experiences and insights on providing blood on this type of patient population and what best practices laboratories and physicians can follow. Dr. Chow, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. And again, thank you so very much for your time. Thank you again for the invitation. My pleasure. I hope you all enjoyed this podcast episode about the need for safe and reliable blood for patients with sickle cell disease and what we can do as a community to support the efforts. Make sure to review the sections within the podcast description for any reading materials that we've suggested. Based on today's podcast, I'll leave you with our pop quiz. What are the treatments for hematological conditions You can always go back and listen again. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to OrthoScience Bites, our monthly podcast, where there will be discussions on more complex questions we face every day in our labs. Brought to you by OrthoClinical Diagnostics, pioneering advances in diagnostics for 80 years, because every test is a life. Take care, stay healthy, and safe.